Hello everyone, I'm Alan Mellish, Director of Events and Online Content at the Human Capital Institute, and this is 9 to Thrive HR, your source for education, expertise, and knowledge on all things talent. If you can't get enough of this kind of thing, check out hci.org for even more free, amazing content like this. Today my guest is High Performance Specialist Mark Dobson, and he's here to talk about leading your culture through negative people. Mark, welcome to 9 to Thrive. I'm excited to be here, coming to you from the other side of the world and uh, ready to dive right into all the juicy content, keen to help a few people out. That's right. If you couldn't tell from his accent, Mark is right. He's coming from to us from down under in Australia. So we're delighted to have this trans-Pacific uh, uh, partnership going on here today. So uh, first, as uh, beyond just the fact that he's Australian, I'd love to get, Mark, a little bit of deeper info on you, a little bit about your background and why you do what you do before we dive in. Well, the why, it's just, I think it's something in our DNA. I think some of us all got a calling into some area where we can't rationalize while we keep getting involved in these crazy things. However, for me, I started actually working in a local youth club when I was a kid. And uh, kids used to come to me with their challenges and their problems. And I used to just invent a solution. I guess it was just, a, you're just being a uneducated guide in a way. But as time went on, more and more people came. And then eventually junior athletes came and then their coaches started to call me. And over a period of about 25 years, uh, as I found, as Henry Kissinger said, success is just a VIP invitation to a bigger crisis. And when you help someone, you move along. And uh, I spent a lot of time coaching really elite athletes at the Olympics, World Championships, Winter X Games and similar. And in those environments, you're measuring something by a hundredth of a second. So it's not a matter of whether or not you can't use a cliche. You can't just bust out another you know, a nice philosophy. You have to assess does the philosophy actually have a method that goes with it that can get us a tangible result. So I've been doing that for 25 years now in all sorts of difficult situations, many corporate organizations now with a lot of CEOs. And uh, it's meant that I've built this toolkit over time, accidentally really, of, of how you can actually really guide people through through things that are quite human. They're not necessarily anything more than human, but people just get a little bit stuck. That's really great. I think a lot of people, you know, they'll be going along a path and then they get stuck, you know, maybe in athletics, it would be they get injured and they don't know how to come back from it or they can't get beyond a certain plateau. And then I think a lot of the time we have the same thing happen in uh, the broader workplace where it's uh, you get stuck at a certain level or you get stuck in a certain role or uh, or whatever. Yes. One of the things that I've learned is that how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you find it very difficult to resolve conflict at work, then you're also finding it very difficult to resolve that conflict at home. If you've got a messy car, you've probably got a messy desk. And if you uh, find yourself becoming uh, a sometimes a bit insensitive to someone else's need or don't understand the impact you have on the people around you, you're probably doing that at home and in your other relationships. And once you take on that philosophy, you realize that if you find an area where you're, which is less scary, say you're coaching your kid's basketball team, and you're finding difficult conversations a challenge to you, then, then practice in a non-threatening environment like coaching your kids' basketball team, and then it transfers into the workplace. However, essentially, how you do anything is how you do everything. So when people get stuck, they're, they're stuck everywhere, and they're actually desperate for the right strategy, but they've tried so hard often that they've become a little bit uh, skeptical or embarrassed or wary, or they just don't think it's possible. They just think it's them. And sometimes, you know, we've all got limitations, but what we're trying to do is just make sure we operate in the top of what we're capable of. And that's what people find very satisfying. If you get a, a grade of a B on an assignment at school and you knew you were capable of an A, that's really deflating. But if your B is good for you, then you're wrapped. So most people just want to be at the best of what they're capable of, and they're looking for how to do that. 
Absolutely. I think everybody's haunted sometimes by the idea that they're not being all they could be, so to speak, in any given area of life. So um, let's zoom in on culture a little bit, because I think, you know, of course, it's of uh, really big interest to our audience. But also, I think everybody instinctively can feel when the culture in an organization is working and when it's really not. So what is culture to you in an organization and how does it fuel or hinder uh, performance in that organization. So culture is something that can be designed. Uh, and sometimes I think what's happened as we've started to look at huge companies like Google that have got some uh, funky tables and some great resources, we've started to think that culture needs to be a fun workplace. But I'm typically looking at what's the vision of the organization. And if we were to deliver on that, how would we need to interact? And sometimes we don't need to have a foosball table or we don't need to have drinks after work. Those things are byproducts, but they're not core levers. So I'm first asking the question, what are we actually trying to achieve? And the second question is then, how would we need to interact and behave to deliver on that in the most reliable fashion? And I'm not talking about nice to haves, I'm talking at its essence. And then from there, culture is always created by what you reward if you're a leader, what you punish and what you overlook. Now, I know the word punish can be a bit um, polarizing sometimes. So it's really what you call out. So what you reward, what you call out in people, and then what you overlook. And even although I mentioned being a leader, it's crucial from a leadership point of view, but people, a major currency for humans is attention. And so even if you're not a leader, if you're giving somebody attention for something uh, that is healthy or unhealthy, then you're actually creating the culture. So it's really important for us to really decide what do we need to reward? What do we need to call out because it's not uh, helpful? And even though the moment it might be not so bad, the question I've got there is, is it sustainable? If, if people kept on doing that, where would we end up? And, and then what do we overlook? And that's the big one. Often when people don't have the skill or they're uncomfortable to have a difficult conversation or they don't know how to bring up something uh, a little tricky, then it gets overlooked and then that festers and becomes something really unpleasant. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the way that culture uh, works in that sort of framing, when we're all contributing to it, either at getting better or getting worse in our with our own individual actions and attention, um, I want to talk about how the two types of people that we're talking about today, the, the negative people, how do they change the culture? And then how do the high performance people contribute to the culture? When we take two cultures, say we've got an organization and it merges with another, when you mix two cultures, the negative culture is always going to win. And I think people, they don't like to hear that. They prefer to hear that, no, if I put someone in a positive environment, they'll come around. And if we surround that person with some good people, uh, and I appreciate the intent and philosophy around that. However, from a real practical sense, if someone is exceptionally uh, difficult or violent, it's very difficult for everybody else to have a really cheerful mood. And they can really destroy a conversation, a moment, um, any kind of feeling of safety and trust. So the negative culture is going to win. So to address that then, we need to actually, as you said, establish a high performance community and also acknowledge what are the behaviors of our culture that's not helpful. And so the way we want to do that is we want to set up some polarity. You want to actually recognize that in your organization, there's probably 10% of the people going in the right direction. They're very helpful. And there's 10% probably going in the wrong direction. They may be good people, uh, but they're just being involved in dysfunctional and not helpful behaviors. So there's 10% going in the right direction, 10% going in the wrong direction. The 80% in the middle tend to follow 
whoever is the loudest. Not passive, but they're definitely not leaders here because they're in the middle ground and the squeaky wheel is the one that gets the oil. So what happens accidentally as a leader is that we start to realize we want to sort of put boundaries around the negativity and we start meetings anticipating the negativity and we design our meetings around those. We we work out what is this negative person going to say or what is the, uh, the who are they going to whisper to or what kind of gossip they're going to create? What kind of rules are they going to break to try to undermine me? And we constantly put our energy and our mindset and even our resources into addressing that. And as a result, you as a leader, are resourcing that person. You don't even realize you're doing it, but your time, your energy, your mental sweat, your losing sleep at night, thinking about it is all going to the negative end of the community. And that's how the negative person actually shifts the culture to a space which suits them. And sometimes they're conscious about it, but often they're not conscious about it. They've just learned some poor skills through life and they're not trying to be difficult. Because sometimes there's people in a meeting that will list out all the things that are a problem and it comes across as negative, but really they just see the risks and they're concerned that nobody has actually acknowledged those risks. There's other times when people have been just truly unhelpful. So as a leader, we want to set up the polarities. And the way we do that is you define what is the high performer in my community? What characteristics? When you do that, you are a star performer. And the opposite is the other end of the scale, which is great because it means that with your top 10%, if you can start to acknowledge anybody who moves in that direction and reward them, you are going to get grief from the bottom 10%. Like 100%, they're going to call you into their, oh, can, can I speak to you? Can we have a meeting about this? And they're, they're, going to, um, they're going to be a hindrance in so many ways because as you start to create the polarity, it's now clear where uh, what, what their behavior is like and uh, the positive energy, the positive role in the community is actually going to get rewarded and it's going to start to stretch out the distance between the top 10% and the bottom 10% and eventually becomes uncomfortable and they've got to decide, can I stay here? Is this sustainable for me personally? Yeah, and I think that as you were talking, it kind of reminded me of the old saying, um, when you're a parent, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And so there's sort of a, there is sort of a magnetic quality that the, the person who's bringing the negative or uh, on the negative end of that spectrum has where it's like, oh, well, we, like something's wrong. I have to try and fix it or uh, address this issue. And then unfortunately, the children or the workers who are uh, doing everything they can to go in the right direction are getting less and less of your attention by contrast. A hundred percent. And that is actually how uh, an organization gets sucked in the wrong direction and essentially doesn't deliver on the vision. So it's no longer profitable anymore. It's uh, no longer a happy place to work. Your high performers start to leave because they can see that uh, leadership is actually being controlled by people rather than leadership controlling the situation. And it becomes terminal for that organization. It becomes very expensive. Unless you've got some crazy investors, they're gonna keep propping you up. You're just ballooning out expenses, productivity's plummeting. It, it just goes in the wrong direction. And uh, that is ex exactly it is because the leader ends up giving all their attention to the negative end of the scale. So we've defined the problem pretty well, I think. I think everybody can probably relate to a, a situation in, or, or an organization where things kind of went in this direction. And probably a lot of us are in that place right now. What do you recommend that we can do to start feeding the a positive side of the spectrum with our attention without you know, completely ignoring or, you know, the other 10%, the negative? How do you strike this balance? Okay, so let's uh, look at it from a leader's point of view. If you're a leadership role, you need to be very deliberate about where you're going to put your time. And 
what you need to do is be very deliberate about resourcing your top 10%. Whether that be that they have access to your diary and they can meet with you anytime, whether they ask for some sort of development and you just jump through all sorts of hoops to make sure that they've got that resource available, uh, whether it be that they need a new chair because of something or they need a new computer or they need your support when they're going in for a meeting and they're pitching, you want to say yes to that person and resource them as much as possible. And in doing that, you will start to be addressing the negative end of the scale because what will happen is people will be a little bit outraged because they'll notice and they'll say, that's not fair. How come they get A, B, and C? How come, how come I went to that meeting and you didn't come then? And at that time, that's the moment to have the conversation. Which, and the answer response to that is, that's a really good question. Why aren't I supporting you? We should probably talk about that. Because that's that you've created the, the introduction, but without the polarity, you can't have them actually come to you and say, that, this is outrageous, why aren't I being resourced? Now, of course, at that point, you need to be able to articulate the differences because someone who's a high performer is measuring things in a very accurate way. They, they like growth and they like to be defined and they like to be accountable, they like to be measured. The other end tends to not like that. So they're just going to make it murky and gray and they get outraged and they get emotional. And I'm not saying we dismiss those things because there are sometimes we've got to really address those issues because that person's going through some sort of challenge, which has uh, got nothing to do with us. However, we need to make sure that uh, we do have a definition of what success or, uh, or high performance looks like in our organization. And the tool that I designed a long time ago, sort of accidentally, is a tool I call the performance ladder. And that is that, in any skill, any job, there's a competency level which is often not defined. So if I've got a job description, typically that job description is just a one-page document with uh, an outline of what our role is, but it doesn't tell us what a high performer in that role is and also what a low performer is. So what I will do with somebody is actually take their role and I will come up with three tiers, a, a basic tier, a reliable tier, which is in the middle, and then a high performance tier. And I will define in their role, in your role, the basic things that you should be able to do within about three weeks of working here are A, B, and C, and I'll list a bunch of things. And uh, you become quite skilled at doing this in different ways, but even if you do this poorly, this will work. And that might be, just say we take a role like a receptionist, which we all understand. A receptionist should be able to, you should be able to pick up the phone, you should be able to answer and say, hey, Smith Company, and you should be able to patch somebody through. That's basic. And if you're not doing that in the first three weeks, then we, this is unsustainable. But then there's the reliable category. So if you want to get better, then reliable would be that you're actually able, that when you answer the phone, you smile, you sound warm, you build a relationship. And if there's some calamity where somebody's not at their desk, you're able to make sure that person feels supported, take a note, the person believes that you're going to make sure the connection happens and you follow it up. But then an elite receptionist might receive the phone call, recognize there's a potential sale happening here, realize that the person they're trying to reach out to is not in the office. So say something like, you know what, Mr. Jones is not here right now, but actually I'm on my lunch break. What I could do is I could grab those papers, run them down to your office, get them signed, bring them back. And by the time he comes in, all the paperwork could be done and that could all move forward for you. Like that's an elite response. So many people in their role naively compare, I'm a receptionist and they're receptionists. I'm on say 55K a year and they're on 65K a year. How come I'm only on 55? They don't realize they're quite poor in their role. Once we create a performance ladder like this, you can actually uh, put it in front of someone and just see whether or not they want to grow. Say, look, I've never, I've probably never communicated this to you, but this is actually how I see someone in your role. And these are the different tiers. And 
I think we should look at some of the skills that are listed here and you choose some ones you want to get good at and I'll choose some ones you want to get good at and let's grow you. And then you start to move people towards something really healthy uh, or create the opportunity to, but also you've got the definition. So when the negative person comes to you, you can just put the same document in front of them and say, well, where do you fit on these skills? Yeah, I think that's um, that's really smart because you're giving people an ideal to strive towards, but also defining what it looks like from the beginning level to the middle to the to the end, giving them a, a literal ladder to make it that way. So, and in your experience, I guess because you touched on this a little bit, I think it's important uh, an important point though to rem- for us to remember that it's you know while it is sort of the spectrum that we're talking about where there's the ten percent on one end and the ten percent on the other. Um, to, I guess, not cast these people out on the negative end out of hand, but it's a use the framework as a way to begin a discussion um, where you might find out, okay, they're being negative for a reason and there are actually issues I need to address or I need to talk with them about why things are different for them than they are for this person who's a high performer and elite performer. 100% because I know that when we create a model like this, then there's a good chance they're going to get a backlash on social media and others say, you know, you box people and you don't give people a chance. I'm like, no, that's not what we're saying here. Like I've got a heart as as big as anyone's and I care about people. That's why we called to do this our whole lives. We're looking at whether or not uh, we as an organization can sustain. We're, We're worried about the happiness of our people and those people at the bottom end of this particular chart. And it's not a judgment of someone's character or their, um, their worth or anything like that. It's about whether or not they're engaging in the, the activities that are going to help this organization survive and therefore pay everybody's lifestyle and also make this a happy place. And typically, what I find is that people who aren't happy, they're struggling. Sometimes this role is not a match for them. And we, by not having a difficult conversation or not creating the framework to show them what success is as an opportunity, we're not creating the opportunity for them to actually have the difficult conversation or the aha moment that says, this is not for me. I didn't realize that that's what the success journey is here. I thought it was something else. So often by our lack of clarity, we're actually not helping people anywhere on the scale. So that's why I say you have to stay up the polarity and, and people sometimes don't want that polarity because it makes them feel uncomfortable. I think there's a judgment element. It's a scale of what activities do we need to engage in to deliver on that outcome? And and that's why I've been able to be successful coaching all sorts of athletes, all sorts of world records and similar. And it's not to go on so clever. I went to those environments to test. How do you actually get the outcome? How do you care about somebody and deliver on the outcome? That's a really tricky skill. And and it means that you need to be um, very conscious and call it as it is. You can't be delusional. That's one of the biggest concerns, especially uh, when I'm dealing with an athlete. You know, if they're deluded, that's a problem. (laughs) <laughs> because it means they think they've got the skill, but they don't. And then, you know, how do we have that conversation? And then, as as we said, there's a lot of soft skills that come with that. How do I have that conversation in a way that's really helpful and kind and gets that person to where they want to be? Yeah, taking an approach of kindness and compassion, but not lying or um, being willing to tell the truth, I guess. is uh, Tell the truth, but in a, in a gentle way, in a kind way that they can hear you. Yes, now this is... So true. I find that so many people will tell me something about a staff member. And I feel like if the staff member had been told that, then they could address it. And I'll often say, have you ever said that to the staff member? They're like, well, no, we have. We've done A, B and C and they haven't actually had a candid conversation. In a high performance environment, the conversations are candid. That's not a mean 
and it's not honest because sometimes when people are being honest, they say, oh, I'm just being honest. Like, no, in actual fact, you're being cold and mean and calculated. It's brutal. Candid just means very clear. And I remember one time having to say to somebody that we just couldn't give them more hours or more roles because, look, you've got a bit of an anger problem. You get angry very easily. And the other people in the conversation just were sick in the stomach as if I had just been so mean. And this girl burst into tears and she didn't burst into tears because I've been mean. She said, I know, and I don't know what to do about it. And we were able to have that conversation. But a lot of this is as leaders, our personal development, are we comfortable almost being uncomfortable or realize that when you're human, when we care about people, it's not mean. It's, it's wrapping your arms around someone saying, I care. This is, a, this is an obstacle for you professionally. How can I help? And so when we talk about 10% and, and, and bottom 10%, in my world, there's no chart. There's no graph of that. That's just an awareness that, you know, we've got to get everybody moving in the right direction. And that might mean that me, myself as a leader, I have to develop my capacity to have loving conversations that are clear. And half the time, if you have that conversation really well, it avoids all the legal stuff. It, it avoids all the heat and the tension and the ugliness and all the paperwork. It's just when you really care about people. Yeah. And, and not to oversimplify it, but sometimes it's as simple as like, uh, hey, you've got spinach in your teeth. Um, if I had spinach in my teeth, I would want somebody to point that out because it doesn't look so great. But sometimes giving that person the awareness is really a gift rather than an uncomfortable criticism. 100%. Oh, 100%. Uh, that's exactly it. And sometimes I think we've all done that. We've gotten home and said, why did nobody tell me that I had spinach in my teeth? And then you feel so embarrassed that the whole night you thought you were being great and funny and you realized everybody was just looking at that spinach. That's a really uncomfortable feeling. And then you're embarrassed because people weren't honest with you. That's really, and it, and it, it wasn't through nowhere error of your own. You just needed that feedback. Exactly. Well, thank you, Mark, for your time today. I think we've got to wrap it up now, but uh, just a reminder, uh, Mark, where can people find out what you're doing and what you're working on and, uh, and learn more about what you've got to say on topics like this? Well, the best place is themicrolibrary.com and that microlibrary platform has a hundred videos of short three to four minute strategies that you can uh, share with your team on all sorts of challenges that are going to come up in the workplace. So these things that I'm talking about today, the performance ladder and others, they're condensed down to three to four minute videos. So you can play them at the start of a meeting or you can shoot them off in an email to someone and they can, and, and you can fast track people's development. I find people don't want to read the whole book anymore. They don't want to do the course. They just want to read the one page or the one paragraph that's relevant for them. So we built that as the microlibrary.com. And uh, if they go to a forward slash HCI, I'll actually put on, uh, I'll set up a page for you guys and uh, a couple of resources on the exact things that we talked about today. Thanks so much for that, Mark. So just a reminder, go to themicrolibrary.com forward slash HCI. And for all ideas related to HR, come and visit the Human Capital Institute at hci.org. Don't forget to rate us, like us, and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Alan Mellish.